All right, we are live. Welcome to the Deconstructing Data Podcast. I'm Jesse Lezak, CMO at BDEX, along with co-host David Finkelstein, BDEX's co-founder and CEO. Today's guest, I'm super excited to introduce you to, is Jesse Allett, the founder of Lead Magic. Lead Magic helps convert anonymous visitors into customers, um, and that's anonymous website visitors which makes it easier to collect first-party data to act upon in many ways, including but not limited to advertisements. Um, thank you so much for being here, Jesse. If you don't mind, could you please start from the beginning and tell us your full story and sure. what inspired you to get into being a SaaS founder and creating lead magic? Yeah, so, hey, great question. Thank you for having me on the show here. Uh, great to see both of you. Uh, yeah, so what happened with me was I was an enterprise sales rep for a while. Uh, it just kind of got to the end of it. And I was like, you know what? I don't want to do this anymore. I want to do something different. Uh, and, you know, there was there was opportunities to become a head of sales at kind of an earlier stage company. But I said, hey, it's probably not that much harder to build, you know, my own product and really kind of focus there and, and kind of drive home really what I did well in companies, which was around lead generation and kind of helping uh, sales reps get leads into their pipeline and, and, you know, convert them. So I was using a lot of first party data. I would use, I was actually working really closely with like the web, uh, you know, the website managers of our companies. And I would use the log files to basically figure out who was on our website and make my account selections. So I always had deals that other people didn't have. And I also had like, kind of an upper hand because I knew what my customers were looking at on the website. And I'd find ways to identify what companies they worked at based on some of the information that they're coming through the website with. Uh, the great thing about first party data is you own it. So it's your data. So you can do it, what you need to do with it. Right. And you can figure out kind of where these people are coming from, the, the ways that they're accessing your website. And as a result, I was able to select better accounts and really get there. So I started my own SaaS company and then, you know, now I'm kind of, uh, growing that. And, uh, you know, we try to stay small, try to stay nimble and, you know, try to try to move fast, really break stuff. <laughs> That's awesome. Well, David, are you there? Oh, David's muted. We can't hear I'm, him. I'm muted. Sorry. There was a landscaper <laughs> no outside my window here making too much noise. So, so I'm muted. No um, problem. So first off, Jesse, great to meet you. Um, Lead Magic Jesse, that is, uh, as opposed to BDEX Jesse. Um, uh, so, I mean, that's a great story. Uh, I always like to hear people's stories about how they transitioned from, you know, um, sort of, you know, in the enterprise world and then starting their own business and, and how you found that niche. And so that's awesome. Um, I'm curious, you know, with respect to the Lead Magic product uh, as a whole how did you know that the time is now like to start this it seems yeah. like uh, uh, there's some intuition there yeah actually so what happened was uh, about about 18 24 months ago i i was at a uh, in a position and and i had some disagreements and and really what happened was i kind of disagreed with the way that we were kind of going to market and a lot of the times that I would get is, well, if you could do it better, go start it, right? And go do it yourself. Yeah. And this was kind of pre-COVID and it was like, uh, it, it was just hitting like as this was going on. And I said, you know what's going to happen? I, I see what's going to happen. This is going to accelerate everybody's digital uh, 
you know, game and, and your, your old way of doing things, your kind of like enterprise way of doing things is going to change dramatically, right? You're still going to have to be a good seller. You're still going to have to have the fundamentals of sales, but you're going to be able to use tools and you're going to be able to, there's no such thing as like an inside salesperson. It's everybody's a salesperson, right? It's going to level the playing field there. It's going to, it's going to do a lot of things. And it's also going to really join sales and marketing together in a much deeper way. And it's going to make everybody focus on revenue. And, and now I think you could even say it's even accelerated even more with the, the way that the technology stocks and everything are going down and, and you know, the way the valuations are going. And, and I knew, uh, you know, after kind of working a lot with like even winning by design from a consulting company perspective and some of the other people that I was helping go to market, I had a really good reputation with CROs, chief revenue officers. And, and they liked me because I was able to help them build a more efficient system. Uh, the only problems like I had was I had always been kind of told like, hey, this is a little bit of a Rube Goldberg machine, uh, right? You know, you're kind of dangling it together. And I realized if I doubled down and really put some emphasis on, you know, strategy, I could build solutions that could take on companies with much larger uh, you know, money and, you know, investment. And, and I could use a lot of the automation. I mean, I really understand sales at a deep knowledge Then I was able to kind of pivot towards marketing and, and also really engineering. And you don't need to, we all know for building a product, right? There's a lot of the code that's already been built, right? You don't have to reinvent the wheel on a lot of this stuff. You just have to make sure you can put it into a market a price you want to be competitive against somebody because if you're not competitive, again, if you're not comparing yourself to somebody else, people aren't going to really understand what, you know, let somebody else do the trailblazing for you and then go in and compete and just do it more efficiently and you can build a fast, faster system. So uh, hopefully that answers your question, David. Yeah. I mean, it seems like you were able to take the knowledge and experience and put all the sort of pieces of the puzzle together at the right time, which is great. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And, you know, I, I, I have a lot of respect for, you know, my grandfather was an entrepreneur, so was my father, uh, so or is, he is now. Uh, and, you know, it's just it's kind of DNA in the family. I, I had a hard time working for people. Uh, if, if somebody's going to control my financial well-being, I want it to be myself at the end of the day. Yeah, yeah. I was a, an employee for a very brief period of time after selling a business, and uh, I'm not good at it. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's like if you're gonna if you're gonna lose control, you know, you want to lose it in the right the right area. So, <laughs> well, you guys are definitely an inspiration. Um, but Jesse, I saw a post on LinkedIn because you're very active on LinkedIn, which of course I appreciate. Um, but I saw a post where you said, "A world where sales and marketing works as one, will it ever happen?" Could you share a little more about your thoughts here on all of that? Yeah, them? yeah, definitely. I mean, you know, I look at it this way. is like, imagine if you didn't have somebody who was in sales and you didn't have somebody who was in marketing, right? And you were, your only goal was to acquire revenue, right? And I think about it this way. Like, if, when I was a sales rep, I always wanted access to the tools, right? I always wanted the data. I always wanted to be able to run ads and I run ads and performance ads at people that I could sell to, right? And I said... What happens if there's no silo? Because that was always my problem. It was always, I'd go to the CRO. The CRO would definitely support me. They'd go to the CMO. The CMO would probably support me a little bit. But then all of a sudden, there was this weird wall that got put up, right? Where they started to kind of blame each other. 
And I was usually in the middle because I was trying to test the limits. I, I, of course, my goal was to acquire more customers faster, better, you know, for longer and all that. And I knew there was a way to do it better. And if I had control over everything, right, I wanted the control over the website, the landing pages, the, the stuff like that, because I saw that that was really where all of this was going. And I said, if I don't have those barriers, and I can run all of this stuff myself it's going to change it a lot, right? I don't need to take all the time. So I realized that, and, you know, this is one of those few scenarios where usually you, you overestimate your own ability, but I actually think I underestimated it for a while. Once I realized, hey, I'm as good of a marketer as any anybody that I've really worked with, uh, at least in B2B, I think there's probably a different skill set in B2C. There's another level of B2C marketers that are, it's pretty impressive. Uh, but in B2B, I think it's even easier, right? I think from, from my perspective anyways, uh, you know, you can be a little bit more broad. Uh, you, you know, I don't, I have a unique solution, right? It's not like I'm sitting there competing for commodity, you know, how many widgets you can sell, right? This is a, a you know, there's only 10 or 15 companies in the world that are doing what I'm doing. And I can just put my message out there in front of them. And, you know, the growth machine can be running in the background, right? And that's what I love. And, distribution of content and understanding that and understanding the algorithms and how you can make them work your, in your favor is really critical. So, yeah, yeah, I think that's a you know great question. I, I really appreciate that one. That's a good one. That was a good one. So um, you also said, <laughs> pulling up just stuff on LinkedIn, um, quote, if you are thinking about becoming a founder of a business that will send emails to new prospects, so this is sort of switching gears, but continuing on with your quote, um, you should register 10 domains plus your primary domain, do it on Cloudflare or GoDaddy um, and TLD. So could you talk a little bit more about sure. all of this domain reputation stuff and why it's important to consider um, DKIM, DMARC, and whether you're sending marketing emails and um, where people are opted in, but also really specifically on those cold emails where people are not opted in, I think is more of what you're focusing on. Um, but yeah, just could you inform us there, Jesse? Yeah, sure. So what we're finding is, and, and this was after working with a lot of companies, uh, I was big in the pavilion, the revenue collective. We were getting a lot of SDRs who were saying, hey, I'm not really converting anymore. And what happened was I started to really look at this problem. And what's happened is since the pandemic happened, everybody's really over-invested or, well, maybe even under-invested actually, but they've under-invested or over-invested, however you want to look at it, into kind of security solutions to block more emails. Now, a lot of this is, is around just getting less spam, but the main reason they do it is security. So there's a lot of overlap there between security and kind of being able to get your email through. So what we're finding is G Suite and Office 365, which are the, excuse me, the two primary um, uh, systems that people use to deliver email, SDRs, are, are getting much more, you know, tough to, to send emails. So yeah. what we're finding is you have a company that has five SDRs, they go to six and they hit this threshold. Now, none of the SDRs are getting their emails through. So, and how many emails a day do you think those five SDRs are sending? When they yeah, so with bad limits, and, and maybe you guys even can talk to this in the consumer world. I mean, the consumer world knows if you're doing email marketing, you got to be good at like 
cleaning your list. And you guys know this a lot better, probably better than me from a data quality perspective, but yeah. all these SDRs are, are, you know, kind of email marketing. It's email marketing at its finest, right? And David, you know, I'd love to hear your perspective yeah. because the B2C world is really connected to this. Yeah, it, it's definitely, you know, it's definitely an issue. It's, it's gotten a lot harder to get your email into someone's inbox. Um, I mean, heck, I even get emails that I want, you know, not going go. into my inbox. You know, I have people that'll call me and be like, hey, did you get me my, my email? And I got to go through the spam folder and I find it in there. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it's gotten really a lot harder. And so to your point, if you're not careful, right, and you're sending too many emails out from, you know, your domain or from, you know, your location, um, they can start getting blocked. And uh, that's a really dangerous thing, right? If, uh, it's, if you're relying on that as part of your growth mechanism, right? So um, it's interesting. Um, we certainly have found, you know, more and more that our clients that are asking for data, sometimes they're asking for data linked to their own email list so they can better target those email lists, you know, in an effort to make sure that they're only, you know, they may have an email list, you know, of, you know, whatever they have, a, you know, sometimes at the consumer level, they have an email list of 100,000 or a million people, right? And these are customers, right? These are actual yeah. customers, but they can't even email their own customers at scale. Uh, without, you know, you know, without having the same problem. So it gets really important to say, okay, well, you don't have to send an email to 100,000 customers about a new product that you have. If that product, you know, category, you know, is really only going to fit 10% of your customers, right? And so now you have to look at how do I limit my list to reach only the people that this really applies to so that it can be more effective about it. And you have to really do fine tune that to, a, um, you know, to some serious detail in order to make sure that, you know, you're not busting up your list and, and getting to the point where you can't inbox at all. Yeah. And what we're seeing, so what's happening is, and, and just everyone's using kind of the same sequencing tools, right? They're using like outrage or sales law. What happens is these tools get brought in. They just get brought in by default. They might have had the tool in another company. And then when they get that tool, they don't put any limits on it, right? So these SDRs can come in and they can send as many emails as they want, which only becomes a problem when your domain gets bad, right? And then if you're over that 3% bounce rate, which is usually like a B2C, you know, you're probably going to be under a 1% in the B2C market, right? Because you sent a lot more. But like 3% in bounce rate, your domain starts to suffer. You're not getting a 10% response rate. You know, even if it's out of office negative responses, you still need that 10%. Uh, you need to get that engagement going so your domain looks good. Or if you're not getting a 30 to 40% open rate, that's another problem, right? And, you know, that's where data quality and, and kind of what you guys are doing too, you know, we're going to start to see this trend of SDRs are going to have to become B2C e-commerce marketing and I don't see that as possible, right? I think that's gonna, I think we're gonna see, I mean, this is a bold prediction, but I think we're gonna see SDRs won't be able to send emails anymore. I think you're gonna have to give it over to your marketing team and you're gonna have to do it more of a B2C activity. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's just because 
let's face it. I mean, how could you possibly have a team of 10 people throttling and accelerating your email delivery? Not like it's got to be managed from a central command center, for lack of a better term, with the background that I have. But, you know, yeah. it's just I don't even understand how companies expect to do it right now. <laughs> Right? Yeah, no, it's a great point. Yeah. And some of these companies have 16, 17 SDRs and they're continually, I mean, well, we're going to see a change there, but you're seeing 16, 17, 18 SDRs on one domain with the same email. They're all using the same email. I mean, that you'd never see that as a B2C marketer. They would know, like, that's not going to NGMI, right? Not going to make it, right? So, yeah, anyways, that business model is breaking. Yeah, that. that's where you're starting to see some of these real inefficiencies. And Google has now come out with some updates and they're going to continually do it on May 30th is the next update. And on that one, um, there's some things that they're going to change from what we're hearing that could actually break the anybody who's using G Suite as an SDR. Interesting. Yeah. So we're May 30th, you said? There's a May 30th update. It's called the apps. So this it's called the app specific password update. Hmm. This, this actually gets rid of anybody who's sending on. Now, it, it shouldn't impact it, but there's some other things they're adding to it. It basically allows people to use apps that aren't really validated by Google. Now you're going to have to spend the 30K to get your sequencer into Google's app store. So like a lot of the apps that people are using, outreach and sales offer covered there, right? But what, hmm. what happens is Google knows if you're using the API through outreach, and if they see the same email go out of your domain six times, they're obviously not going to let that thing go in to another company's email box. So there's all these problems that are going to start to happen. And what I think is happening now is people aren't measuring inbound versus outbound. They're looking at it from like one, oh, look at our emails. They got this. But it's like that doesn't count. So I think what's going to happen is you're going to see more growth, kind of growth machines built. Like I've built a couple of these systems where if I told you the stack, you guys would laugh at me. The technology stack that I've used to build them, you'd laugh. But I know they're working way better, right? And and I'm I'm hedging my bets on them because I I the failure I could have my entire domain fail and I could just switch domains in two seconds and it wouldn't even impact me even a little bit. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. No, I got to put that May thirtieth update on my calendar and take a peek. I think it's doomsday. I really I don't want to share all the secrets, but I, I think that one could be, I think May 30th could be the end of SDRs. Uh, oh, email, no. Cold, cold email. And, uh, if you're over five SDRs, May 30th, I think that's the end of SDR sequencing. It'll be interesting to see what happens. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, should we switch gears, David? Into Sorry, not to doom and gloom, everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I know. Yeah. We're going to have to come back to that, though, because the May 30th thing, that's interesting. Yeah. It really yeah, is. Wednesday. We'll keep an eye on that. Um, yeah, so like Jesse said, switching gears. Um, you want to talk a little bit about identity resolution um, and how that improves first-party data in a B2B world compared to B2C. Yeah. Um, so give me sort of your thoughts on that. Yeah. So what we're seeing really from a B2B perspective is where a lot of people got bad all of a sudden over, because there, there were kind of a couple ways of doing B2B identity resolution. Uh, you know, you, you would, there's cookies that are coming through from the third party perspective, right? And then there's 
kind of people who have their own customer data platforms that are kind of tracking on an ongoing basis and figuring out who is coming from what, right? So what I'm seeing from an identity resolution, so I'll just give you a breakdown of my traffic. I'm seeing about 35% bots hitting my website now, right? Or any of my customers' websites, right? So they 35 to 40% of bots. So first of all, if you're paying for paid ads, you better be doing something to block the bots because you're losing that, that pretty much lines up with what Elon Musk is saying about Twitter. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Twitter <laughs> might be even 50% bots. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but, you know, it's, it's, you got the 35 to 40% bots. You take that traffic out. And, you know, what you got to look for is ways to identify people with where, where you can kind of, you know, there's really these two types of identities that you're looking at, right? There's, there's people who are using first-party data that are, understand it and are able to identify it. Now, when I was a rep, I never really enjoyed looking at third-party data because I would always say the only one I really actually liked was G2 Crowd. But like, even that, I was yes, like, I'm always bringing up G2 internally, David. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I'm glad you mentioned it, Jesse. If I don't run the website, I I start to question like, all right, I want to find out how they got the traffic into the website yeah right? and that's been my biggest thing because I've, I've seen some of the solutions out there they will they will put content out there and you know look if i need to get people to hit a website i will put so many people on your website you would you're you know you would have a problem with your you know you might run out of bandwidth, right but that's what's happening is like when you incentivize a company to take a bunch of data and and then send it back out they're going to naturally just for their own sake they're going to send you back crap mm-hmm. so what i would always do is i'd always say wait a second i don't want any of the third-party data please do not mix that in right keep that on its own island because i only want to know who's on our site so whenever i was working with marketing teams i would explain this to them i'm like listen i know they have an seo website and it's tracking well and i know why they think that that's good traffic but i'm going to tell you for our customers it's not so the only stuff I used was first-party data. Now, that's getting harder to kind of resolve based on the fact that there are fewer third-party cookies coming through. And what we're really seeing is, you know, storing that data and kind of keeping it for a longer a longer period, but obviously updating all of your records and GDPR and all the, all the stuff. We're seeing that if you can kind of target the people who come to your website and you can kind of figure out who they are and, you, you know, Somebody comes in from a Wi-Fi, you can kind of figure it out. There's ways. And then you just kind of, it's not about the person though. It's about the company, right? You have to be more broad. One of my biggest problems with Lead Magic right now, I always get this objection. Who is it at that company? And that is where I have to go kind of like, all right, listen, if you can't figure out who it is at that company, there's probably a bigger problem if you're selling a B2B solution, right? Get on LinkedIn and figure out who it is. Like, I don't want to be in the business of resolving, you know, B2C contacts. And, and that's kind of like where probably you guys probably start to say, because you can resolve a lot fewer contacts, but you're going to be able to do it against the person, right? Yeah, and that's absolutely. where that's where the difference I see from B2B and B2C. I don't, mm-hmm. I never get into the business of solving B2, B2C. I just, it's not my thing. For, for, you know, I have to separate the two. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Hopefully, no, that's, that makes sense. Yeah, no, it's perfect. Uh, makes perfect sense. Uh, it's you know, it's a it is a different world when you're in the B two B versus B two C. And uh, um, yeah, to your point, 
you know, if you know the business that is, uh, you know, somebody from a business is visiting your website, um, you're selling, you know, a product to, you know, marketers, then, you know, you need to reach the marketing team inside that company. Right. So, yep. um, you know, obviously there's plenty of ways to do that. And LinkedIn, obviously being one of them, as you mentioned. Um, yep. So, yeah, I mean, obviously the, there's no need at that point to resolve to the consumer themselves. And uh, I think that that's, uh, you know, make an excellent point and uh, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, it's a, just a different need when you're selling a consumer product, for example. Yeah. And I totally get the need for B2C too, right? Cause if you can resolve even one or two people, like that could be like a lost sale, like if they're in an abandoned cart, but you're dealing with a higher volume of traffic and, and you know, it just would be a hard value prop for me to even talk to a B2B company that gets maybe 5,000 people a month on their website and say, Hey, I only could resolve maybe one or two of these people. Right. They'd be like, well, we're not going to pay you. Yeah. That's not right. right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So I mean, obviously what you're doing right now is providing a lot more value than that. So that's great. Yeah. Yeah. So I've had to kind of like, you know, and look, it's, it's, it's funny because technology like mine, I'm not going to go and say I'm breakthrough or like, it's not, it hasn't been out for a while. I think the secret sauce is in how you present it to your sales team and how you get your sales team to mobilize. It's almost a process problem. And we found this out by selling a lot of it. Uh, and we see the other vendors that are in this, that are doing this, um, you know, and, and another conscious decision we've had to make is, do we give the, the data back to the customer to put into their own customer data platform? And the answer is yes, we, we've decided to do that. And the reason why is because we don't think companies that run these big expensive ABM solutions are going to make it, right? They're trying to run a customer data platform, a CDP, uh, on the outside of yours. And once their marketing team becomes savvy enough to figure out how to run one of these CDPs, they're going to just want the data. They're not going to want the whole, they don't want yeah. the whole platform behind it. Yeah, I mean, your goal is to make it as actionable as possible, right? Right. So they're going to lose that market fast. And I think this is going to completely dis disable the ABM market. Uh, my prediction is that the ABM market, uh, all of the vendors are going to have to give the data back to the customer because a savvy customer would never let another vet, like I would never let a vendor that didn't give me the data. I, I want to put it in my own customer data file. Right. And I give people that I actually allow them to do a callback so they can actually go put it into their own against their own record and their identity. So, look, I, I just that's something that I think is going to happen. And from a data quality perspective, right, like you could put it in there and tag it as, hey, this is what lead magic thinks. You know, and, and I think you're going to see a real once people understand what an ABM vendor is actually doing, that's going to really destroy that whole ABM market. I think there's going to be a cannon blown through that market. I don't think any of those big ABM platforms are going to survive. Yeah. Totally. Anything you want to add on identity resolution from the B2C side, David? Um, yeah. I mean, obviously um, it's a, it's a, uh, it's a big talking point right now um, from a privacy stand standpoint. Right. And so, uh, I think that there's a lot that's going to change down the road on the B2C side when it comes to identity. Um, 
you know, everybody's worried about privacy and there's, mm -hmm. you know, all the changes with iOS and so on and cookies. Um, and there is, I don't know, there's probably somewhere between 50 and 100 different uh, companies that have come out with their own ID of some sort, right? Um, but I don't think, uh, you know, I've said this a number of times, I don't think any of those IDs are the IDs of the future, so to speak. Uh, I think they're all just marketing ploys to uh, get you to want to continue to do business with them um, while the industry tries to figure out what the heck is going to happen. Uh, but I do think that the there will be a there is a long-term solution to this that will enable sort of the consumer to have some um, form of transparency and trust with respect to data and their identity um, on the internet. But uh, I don't think that product exists yet. I, I think that it is a product that will um, circulate around consent management where the user consents to certain um, transactions with respect to data and their and their privacy but uh, it's a it's a fundamental change in how the ad tech ecosystem works today and so I don't think that we're there yet um, but I, I think that it'll happen I'll tell you where I get nervous as a consumer uh, and, you know and this is kind of this is where I you know what's happening I see a lot is like there's a lot of breaches that are happening right we're seeing it almost every day. There's a new company that has a breach or something like that. Yeah. You know, and my, you know, I'll even look like my wife, you know, we, when we got married uh, three, four years ago, whatever it was, well, I should know the exact date, but uh, <laughs> when we got married, you know, when we were looking through the, I was looking at the breaches and I'm like, wow, you know, minted.com got hacked. Right. Unfortunately. Right. And there's, there's some private data there. Right. It's nothing, it's nothing crazy. Right. It's like personal email, you know, and, and it's, it's there and it's, I look at it like that data is now available, right? And I could do a lot of work to get that off lists. And, 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 and I think there's this like kind of unknown factor. And I look at a lot of even these B2B data providers, right? The self, you know, and I, and I always like kind of question back and forth, like, you know, God, there's a lot of data out there. There's a lot of information on people and it's available in places and you don't know who's using what, where, when, how, why. And you just look at that and you're like, man, that just stinks that you're like another company. You gave another company your information. They got breached. And then now they're selling. Now you've got data providers that are selling that data back to people. And like that's yep. happening a lot of areas. There's a lot of like it's it's definitely legal in certain parts. It's just the, you know, the the, you know, being ethical about it right and it's just like there's a lot of those questions and the laws are so far behind like way behind right yeah and you know i mean europe's got a little bit more there but like it's still pretty weak comparatively and you just look at yeah. how far ahead the data providers are um i mean i know there's been a lot of talk on this but look i yeah i benefit from some of it right but i also look at like the way that some of these companies go to market and you know, you got to know who you're doing business with and things like that. But I know there's some really, really sneaky ones out there. And, you know, there are. <laughs> there yeah, absolutely we are. We could probably have an offline discussion on that one. But, like, it's just like a whole, I mean, it's a, it's a very weird, interesting spot right now for, for data providers to be in. Yeah, uh, I, can, I can vouch for that. I mean, we have a, we have a really strict um, vetting process for data companies that want to participate in our platform. Um, but we get inquiries all the time. You know, somebody will send an email and be like, oh, hey, I have 
you know, a million social security numbers and this and that and this tied to it. And I'm just like, geez, you know, and they're, they're like <laughs> sending us emails to our info, you know, inbox, um, you know, yeah. proposing They'll to give you whatever you want. <laughs> geez. It's just, yeah. It's, it's crazy. really scary. But it is scary. And, and I think to your point um, about data breaches and just not knowing who has what data, I think that's the biggest problem today, right? Every website you go to, you click a button and you're saying, okay, and you're letting them track something about you, right? Because it's like every website mm -hmm. you go to right now has this button, but you don't know, you know, nobody's going to sit and read all the fine print and nobody knows what they're Nobody tracking. knows what cookies, where it's coming. It's too complicated. Yep. They're all tracking something about you. And, and honestly, that exists, in, you know, if you visit, you know, 50 different websites or apps in combination, then there's 50 different places that have data about you and you have no control, no transparency and no way to, to manage any of that, right? Are mm -hmm. you going to go to every single one of those 50 websites and read through their privacy policy, look for their opt-outs and all that? No. And so- You couldn't I, even do it even if you had a full-time person doing it for you. I mean, yeah, exactly. You couldn't. You, know. you couldn't. You, nobody has the time to do that. So um, I think that's the biggest problem. Um, but I think that there are solutions to this problem. Yes. And so I just think that it's just going to take some time for the, you know, the industry to sort of catch up and figure out how to handle the problem. Um, and I look forward to seeing when that problem is solved. Um, you know, I'll, the only thing I'll share is that, you know, BDEX does have like a stealth project in house um, where we're looking at a solution to this. Um, but you know, and I, I, we're, I'm sure we're not the only ones. There's there's probably uh, hundreds of companies out there that are trying to figure out what this problem is because whoever figures it out is going to, you know, it's going to do really well, right? Because yep. the entire ad tech ecosystem, you're talking about $400 billion uh, uh, industry is uh, is reliant on it and needs a solution down the road. Yeah, just and just I, I think I also think that like on the flip side, it's really one of the only few ways to stay in business and you know, if you look at the API economy and like what's happening here is any app you're using anywhere, it's getting stripped down to the to the bare minimum feature function, right? And the only thing you're adding on top of it is like a unique insight, right? I look at this and I say like, okay, well, I want this one feature of this big enterprise software platform. I really like it. And I think this is why everybody's paying for it. And you can kind of, take that one feature and people can kind of go far with that, right? Whatever insight it is. So I also think that if you're building a company right now, you know, if you're going to build any sort of moat or, you know, competitive advantage, you're going to have to be well invested here. And you see like Snowflake and, you know, the, the success of these big data platforms and, and data warehousing uh, solutions and BigQuery and, and all the other ones, like it's all coming through there. I mean, even today I was just yep. looking, Google Sheets now has a BigQuery integration in, in Google Sheets. So, you know, everyone's going to be a big data engineer. <laughs> it's not going to yeah. be, <laughs> you know, these spreadsheets are going to get to everybody now. So it'll be very interesting yeah. to see how this works. Yeah. Interesting. Well, for the sake of time, I'm going to try to merge together three of my questions. So David and Jesse, can you fill the audience in on the most important things they need to know about leveraging the power of first-party data as we go into the next year with Google's third-party cookie deprecation? Um, additionally, talk a lot about data privacy. 
um, and what small brands can do to make sure, you know, they're respecting their audience too. I know we're kind of getting into that a little bit, but also with all of this too, um, what is something, you know, that you think B2C brands can learn from B2B and what can B2B learn from B2C? So there's a whole lot there. Um, and I guess since you're our guest, Jesse, could we start with you on leveraging the power of first party data? Yeah. So I think the biggest thing about first party data that you want to get into place is kind of three main areas of control. So really security as uh, as number one, right? For data, data security, data privacy, right? And if you don't have this expertise in house, you need to figure that out. So when you do lose the keys, if you lost the keys to the, you know, to the, the treasure or whatever you have in your business, you're not losing everybody's password or the hat, you know, you're not losing it all with you. The other part of it is the governance, right? You want to know who in your business has access to this information. You want to understand governance. And then the, the third part about it is operation. Uh, and, you know, governance includes like audit control and things like that. And then operations is like the third one, right? So, you, you know, you want to apply some people to this, this problem and, and you want to hire people that are kind of data ops, right? I've also found a lot of revenue ops and mar even marketing ops. I find very few that have really specialized in data ops. You're going to need to bring some technology people into your marketing and your sales organizations. Definitely. And I see security governance and operations as being the main pillars. And if you can kind of get these areas in, you then probably are in a point where uh, you could start to manage some of the third you know, some of the first party data. And there's, there's just, you know, when you're looking at potentially sensitive information that's coming in, I mean, who knows? I look at the log sometimes and I say, I can't believe I was transmitting this information to my website, you know, and it just scares me sometimes. Like I'll opt into something and then I'm like, you know, I'm, you know, I look at my log files, right. And I'm like, why, how did I get this thing in my browser? You know, like just anything just in general, like it's personal information or, just whatever it is. And I see that information. I'm like, how did I ever get that in there? So you got to know who's touching the data, who has it, security governance and operations, I'd say is the number one as we move from a third party to a first party. And people are going to be more, are going to need to do a lot more with first party data, right? And you own it. So it's right. You can take more advantage of it. It's definitely a really good point. And I think that um, to your point, I think a lot of small, small medium-sized businesses do not have any of those controls in place. Um, and what they don't realize is that the risks to their business that that creates, whether it be from a security standpoint, someone breaking in and getting the data or employee theft, you know, Hey, an employee yep. leaves and they take all that with them, you know, mm -hmm. and if you don't have those controls in place, then, then that could put your whole business at risk, you know, okay. and it's an investment in your business as a whole, right? Not just, you know, people think of it as just, hey, it's, it, you know, it's not something I really need, but it's, it's you know, it's crucial to your business. And, and I think it's, a, it's a, those are really, really good points. Yep. Um, yep. So I'll expand on what you said. So now you're a small, medium-sized business. You've got these um, controls in place, right? Okay, so what are we going to do with that first-party data, right? And so... Um, there is a couple of things that from my perspective that, you know, we talk to our clients about and one is collecting it. Right. And so a lot of companies don't realize what it takes to collect that data uh, and, and the importance and the value that it adds to your business to do that. 
And so the more you can learn about your existing customers, um, the more you can use that to expand your business. And so, uh, you know, I always fall back to a company by the name of Rackspace. Years ago, we used to work with them and they sent us surveys via email about, you know, how, you know, happy we were with the service or what new features we might want and things like that. But they had this great way of doing it. They surveyed us with one question. You know, they didn't send us a survey that's going to take 15 minutes to do. And there's seven steps. And after you, you know, answer a bunch of questions, now you see this little thing move and you realize, oh, I'm not going to finish this survey. This is ridiculous, right? I've seen so many companies that create these surveys and there's no way I'm going to fill that out. And I can't imagine that they get any response. And so, you know, that was one sort of trick that I learned that I, you know, always hand off to, to anyone I talk to. Um, if you want to survey your, your customers, ask them one question, send them an email, ask it over the phone, whatever it is, one mm -hmm. question at a time. They're more likely to answer one question than, you know, a dozen. <laughs> so, uh, and you can learn some really great things, right? Whether it's just how, you know, how they feel about the service or whether it's new products and services that you're interested in, in adding and you want to get feedback from your existing customers, whether they would even buy it. Um, so collecting first party data is, is first and foremost. Uh, and then, you know, we're starting to really teach people how to take this first party data that they're now getting and use tools to leverage that to find more customers that look like their best customers. And there's, you know, there's not a lot of tools out there. BDEX has a product called OmniIQ. It's a machine learning product. You literally can upload some data about your existing customers. And, you know, we build an audience of people that look just like those customers. Yeah, it's kind of like a lookalike you do on Facebook, but, you know, to the nth degree, you know, um, it's on, it's like a lookalike on steroids. Uh, and that then gives you an audience that you can market to that is going to be really, um, you know, pinpoint it to who you want to reach. And so these are, you know, some things um, that I see as far as first party data is concerned. Once you're, you know, have that governance in, in place and you're able to start collecting the data, um, you know, in a, in a um, compliant manner, then uh, you need to learn how to use it. Yeah. I know I've told you this before, data. David, but to your point of just asking one question and collecting, you know, data on one question, that's how we used to win political campaigns. We would go around and just ask thousands of people, uh, if not millions, can we count on your support for this candidate? Yes, no, undecided. If they say yes, we turn them out to the polls. We do everything we can do to get to them to get them to the polls. If they say no, we exclude them from all of our lists. Forget about them. If they're undecided, if there's time and it's early on, we can send them letters and mail and do other things. Um, but you know, so it's a really great point and. First party data was working for political campaigns back in 2008, back in 2010, <laughs> you know, just, well, because yeah. we would win. Um, yeah, but super no, important. All really great stuff. Uh, but to the point of like, what can B2C learn from B2B and B2B to B2, for B2C? Since you guys both specialize in them and there's all this talk of merging them and who does what better. Um, Jesse, go ahead. What are your thoughts? Yeah, I think B2B... Uh, what what B2B, what B2B can really learn is uh, the details matter, right? Uh, one of the things I've seen is a lot of LinkedIn camp. I've been working with a lot of companies and, and we'll go in and I'll look at their campaigns and, and I'm like, 
you know, you're, you're running these, you know, you can target like the whole point of you spending all this extra money on the premium of LinkedIn ads is the fact that you can target by title at the company, right? You understand that like you can run these ads directly at the people that can buy your product. Why would you run them to people who can't? And, you know, when I look at these, I call it kind of like, it's like ad leakage. I was actually working at a company and this was sort of the end of my days of B2B when I was working for somebody else. Uh, they were spending $80,000 a month. And what was happening was they were running ads to the wrong country based on a couple of settings. <laughs> and it was like blowing up a Ferrari on their, uh, on their front lawn every single month. And I was like looking at it and I was in sales and I was like, listen, I'm just going to like... Like I've looked at how this ad is getting ran. It's getting run to a country that we don't actually have one sale. It's like whatever UTC midnight, whatever. So there's not, a, no one in the U S which is where our entire sales team is, is getting this ad. And this is an $80,000 a month spent. And it just went way over. It was like, let's just get a tool to figure that out. Right. And that's kind of what I see in B2B. And I think B2C doesn't seem like they do. I don't see that as much. Like when I talk to my, you know, I have some people that are really good at B2C marketing that I work with a lot. And when I talk to them, that, that kind of behavior just doesn't seem to happen that much, right? Like that, that's, a, that's somebody's job, right? And if they do that, they're, they're, not, they're not employed anymore, right? Like, <laughs> right? And I think that's where B2B really, you know, not to kind of go after the industry that I've been serving, it's that stuff like ad spend, I'm just like, you can't sell your product to those people that you have that ad going to. Why would you send them that ad? You know, and then I see other people who are sending direct message ads too. That's another one. It's like, why would you send that message to that person when you could just use a sales rep to send it? You're paying a dollar. Why wouldn't you just yeah. send it directly? Just connect to them on LinkedIn. And so anyways, those are that's the areas. Yeah. Like I see targeting in B2C a lot better. I don't see as many of those like, I guess you call them, uh, it's like a baseball analogy, unforced errors, right? I see a lot of that in B2B and I don't see that as much in B2C and I'm actually tracking the ad spend of all the B2B companies and it would shock you at what some of these companies are spending. Some of these companies that are going to have these massive layoffs pretty soon are spending on ads, on Google ads and most of their customers aren't on Google looking for their products. So that's why I'm like, what is? what are you guys doing? But anyways, yeah. that's kind of like what I think we, B2B could learn from B2C. Hopefully that was what you're looking for. Yeah, no, that's great. Uh, and I'll, I guess I'll go in the other direction. I'll just say, look, um, the, the B2C world uh, obviously spends a lot on advertising. But what I see B2B doing is using a lot more tools. And so I don't think that there's enough tools in the BDC world. I think in the BDC world, they think of social media as a tool and they're just like, oh, well, I can advertise on TikTok because everybody's advertising on TikTok and I'll just reach lots of people because there's lots of people there and I'll target, right? So they're using the data that's in, you know, TikTok or Facebook or whatever to target. But I don't think that there's a lot of tools being used um, the way that B2B marketers use you know, a very long list of tools um, to manage, you know, their marketing efforts. And there's, you know, the, the MarTech stack is huge and there's a lot of different options out there, but I don't think that there's a huge MarTech stack for B2C uh, as much. Um, yeah, you make a great point there. Interesting. So lessons learned. 
B B to C. Make your don't blow up Ferraris on your front lawn. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. David, do you want to ask any more of your questions here? You know what? I mean, if we have time, uh, we had a couple other questions. Oh yeah, um, we are seven minutes over. Do you are you both okay with time? Yeah. Yep. All right. Um, so I had a question about um, LinkedIn and SaaS growth top tactics. Um, so we launched um, a SaaS product called Omni IQ. I mentioned earlier. Um, so I'd love to kind of get you know sort of kick the tires with you and get an idea of what are sort of your go-to tactics for launching a SaaS product. Yeah. So I think where I'm, where, where I see is it really in the beginning is to find as much uh, cheap traffic as your it's distribution. And I think B2B SaaS is actually an easy industry. If you can get the product up and running. Uh, What I mean by that is, if you can get the distribution right, remember, you can send a lot of emails if you figure out how to get delivery right. You can send, you can be in a lot of places if you can get people to engage with content, right? I mean, you might do some, you know, you might do some bait posting where you say, hey, here's the top 100 CROs, which is something I did yesterday or a couple of days ago. And I have like seven or eight CROs messaging me now. I almost... You know, I like that actually worked pretty well, believe it or not. Uh, and I've got That's a, a good of, one. That's a nice trick. <laughs> you know, and you, and you, you know, and I see a lot of these companies. In fact, I already know I'm getting hit with. I, I got I got companies trying to sell me awards. I'm like, well, this is a little odd. Like, I don't want to have to pay for it. It doesn't really count, right? But mm-hmm. uh, you know, in distribution is really distribution is really the biggest the biggest challenge. And I think you can play a little bit of the volume game early. Uh, and what I'm constantly testing is brand and performance. Uh, and what I mean by that is like, you can do some things that might go into that. Like when you're early on and, you know, Dave Gerhardt talks about this a lot with like the brand stuff that he talks about, but early on, you can kind of maybe test a little bit on your brand. Right. And, you know, you can kind of put it out there a little bit. Right. And you're not, and you're really trying to get that category going. You should not be talking about, or you're trying to compare yourself to a competitor, right? I think that stuff works really well because people don't want to have to figure out what something new is. They just, they have no tolerance for it. And, you know, I've got friends who run independent SaaS companies, B2B. I've got a friend, he's got, you know, he's took an API, he's got it up and running it. I mean, he's already, he's just smashing it right now. Like I, I look at his we talk MRR occasionally and, and I can't even believe he has like two people working for him and he has, you know, close to hundred K in MRR. And I'm just like, how are you doing this, man? Like, you know, I, but, but it's distribution really. And it's like how fast you can get people into that solution and get them value. So that's like the key yeah. right now to B2B SaaS. And if you really want to do it, you just want to get your, your content. You want to get the eyeballs on it. You want to get them on the, the the, uh, you want to get them into your content. You want to get them engaging. You want to get them testing it. And even if you're not talking about your product, like I talk a lot about email delivery, people are like, why are you always talking about that? You don't even have a product that solves that. Well, the person who's doing email delivery does need lead gen services. They need, they need to know who's on their website. They need quality data for like, you know, B2B data. Like it's the same people. (laughs) So yeah. You know, talk about a problem that's bigger than what you have and distribute the content as much as you possibly can, really. That's great. I appreciate that. And I think our listeners yeah. will appreciate that as well. Yeah, thanks. Absolutely. 
Jesse from our you know, Jesse BDX Jesse. I think that's from my list. That's our our wrap on the questions that we need to hit. All right. Well, I guess in closing, one final question for you both. Um, lessons. So going off what you've you've both learned working in data um, from your perspective, what would you share with anyone else who's looking to launch a company and follow in your footsteps? David, you want to go first? Yeah. Um, okay. Yeah. Launching a company um, I, I, that's pretty broad, um, but I'd say that, you know, if we're talking about being data centric, uh, yeah. not necessarily the business itself, but, but what, um, what we should, uh, what I would recommend to them is, I think, you know, honestly, I think it goes back to what, what Jesse said earlier. I think that you need to collect data. You need to do it um, in a compliant manner. You need to have the governance internally to, to you know, to control it, uh, or you're putting your business at risk, right? And so I think the importance of collecting that data and managing it um, in, in the proper manner um, to protect your company uh, as a whole and protect your company's future is super important and then leverage and use that data. You know, there's so many companies that collect data and they never even use it. You know, they don't even know why they're collecting it. And so I, I think that, uh, you know, going full circle to our conversation, I think those points we discussed earlier are probably the things that I would recommend most. That's great. Yeah. And for me, I, you know, there was a, a lot of sales training that I took and, one of the ones that uh, force management is pretty well known. And, and it's funny, even if I'm in sales marketing, it doesn't matter. I think you got to really dial in the reason if you're starting a company, get the four questions. There's four questions that like they just hammer into you. And if you can't answer these, you know, if you can't tell people how they're going to save money or time, right? The four questions are what problems do you solve? How do you solve those problems? How do you do it differently or better? And what are some of the proof points? Those are like the four main questions. And if you write those down and you truly know the answers and then go test it. And one of the things that I tried not to do is a, like, it's easy as a founder. Uh, the biggest problem I've had is like, it's easy as a founder to have kind of that survival bias. Like you're, you've made it this far. You've kind of done it however you've done it. You've figured out a way to start a business and not fail. You're, you know, don't, don't keep going that way because always listen to everybody, you know, feedback wise, like it's very easy to get that your head big and then just like people can prop you up and that, but I like to listen to people that I just, even if I, you know, whatever my level, you know, I like to listen to a lot of different feedback. Even I, I hate having, like, I want somebody to tell me something wrong, right? Like if I'm not hearing, like there's, you know, you just got to, feel that everything's going to fail every day. Right. <laughs> I you know want it's, data. It's, it's, <laughs> yeah. And you want to yeah. be able to track it. Right. And I think that's really the biggest thing is that if you can't answer those four questions, you can't tell people how you can save money or time, or you just really that. And it's easy as a founder to be like, whatever I'm doing well, or it's successful and it's going to work and you know, your company's doing well, but you know, at any given time, like we even look right now, you know, if you were a company that raised a four bill on a $4 billion raise. And now you're looking at Confluent is now worth 4 billion. And you're like, well, I'm nowhere near Confluent. You know, like 
if you're if you're like in that enterprise software market and now you're cutting 20% of your workforce today, there's a few companies that have done that today. If you've looked, I look at that like, geez, you probably should have had that on your agenda. Like you probably should have saw that coming in some ways, like you probably shouldn't have hired against that. And, yeah. and it's just risky. I mean, it's, it's, it's a very, I, I wonder what some of these founders are doing with some of this money. And I just, well, that's yeah. gone on for a long time, but, but, you know, uh, <laughs> as far as people raising money and then just blowing it. Right. Um, yeah. But I think to your point, you know, just if we want to just um, talk about business advice in general, um, I always recommend to any new founder to read E-Myth Revisited by Michael Gerber. It's to me, it's the um, it's the entrepreneurial Bible. And so I, 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 oh, yeah, no, that's that's one that has to be read um, because uh, I don't think you can start a business um, without reading this book to some extent. Uh, I think it, it changes the way you, you sort of get off and running um, and it gives you a foundation. And so I always recommend that to everybody. It's, uh, it's, it's essentially the Bible when it comes to um, E-Myth. It stands for entre- Entrepreneurial Myth. And uh, that's Michael Gerber. So I'll give him a little plug. I've uh, seen him speak. Great. That's and, a great uh, one. I'm going to... He's, uh, he's, yeah, it's, 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 uh, like I said, it's the Bible as far as I'm concerned, awesome. where everybody should start. Yeah, I really enjoyed this. This was a great conversation. Really, uh, great. some good nuggets. Yeah, here. likewise, Jesse. Thank you so great. much. I guess in closing, we would love to get input from the listeners about, you know, our new podcast, Deconstructing Data. If there's any guests you think we should have on, Jesse, if you know of anyone, we would love to hear from you as well as well as like what questions do you have about what's going on in marketing and data and machine learning and advertising and identity resolution. Um, We'd love to get into it. And our goal is to share knowledge and educate our audience. So please share your qualitative data back with us with your feedback and send it to info at bdex.com. So Jesse, do you know anyone that you'd like to um, recommend for the show? Uh, You know, you know, who's who, who I've been liking a lot on LinkedIn. Um, forget his, uh, AJ, the, he, he runs a lot of the LinkedIn ads. Uh, AJ Wilcox, I believe is, uh, he runs the, the LI ads agency. Uh, he's, he's been, he's pretty consistent. Um, and I think I would like to just hear a little bit about how he might, you know, there's going to be a kind of a mix of, uh, you know, now that we can get better targeting and, and, you know, he's really, I really value his benchmarking and, and kind of like LinkedIn ads as an area where I think there's a lot of room for improvement. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and this is after I've kind of gone through some of these ads and I think you guys have a pretty good story there. AJ, I really like his, his stuff and uh, man, he's, he's just very interesting and he's got a really good uh, kind of approach data driven. He can, he can spit out the numbers of benchmarking and, and what, what ads you should be running where. And I've learned a lot from him. Well, we'll look him up. And AJ, if you're out there listening to this, uh, give us a call. Absolutely. (laughs) I've already tagged him in the comments of this post and looped in him and Jesse and I'm connecting with him now. So I'm a big fan and he he probably knows it, but like every, he's the goat of uh, LinkedIn ads. That's for sure. You cannot find anything on LinkedIn ads without him. And and I've tested, he knows his stuff really well. Well, I'd love to learn from him. Well, thank you both so much. It's been a great time talking with you and I think our audience enjoyed it too. So I hope everybody has a great Thursday.
Have a great one. Have a great Memorial Day. Thanks, Jesse and Jesse. Bye. Thank you.